0: I guess what I'm saying is that it seems to serve some function for society maintaining its homeostasis or its balance or whatever. You know what no, it's good. No, yeah. because, I mean, you know, don't edit it.
1: An old African proverb teaches us that a child that is not embraced by the village burn it down to feel its warmth. I'm Wes, and I want to introduce you to this version of the village. I'm a black man, and Healing Transitions alumnus, former employee of Healing Transitions, past board member of the Board of Directors, certified substance abuse counselor, veteran. A year ago, myself, Chris B., our podcast host, and kindred spirit, Lucas V., a social worker with the VA, sat down to discuss race, recovery, and our love for reading. Now with the recent crying out of I Can't Breathe Again and the death of George Floyd, it is the perfect time to release this discussion. I hope this episode will help you share and open up this conversation throughout the village. Please embrace our voices. Our voices are that of the village one breath at a time. Rest
2: in peace, George Ford.
0: Hey, I'm Chris Budnick. Welcome to Voices from the Village. Some of the staff here uh, said to me one day, you should do a podcast interview with Lucas. And for the listeners to give some context, earlier uh, we did an interview uh, for a second season episode, did it with a guy, Jamil. Who performs under boulevards and he does funk and I said and one of the questions I asked him I said was uh, what's the funkiest thing in Raleigh and he said I'm the funkiest thing in Raleigh and I, and he performed at an event out of Greensboro I was, uh, and I said you met the second funkiest thing in North, North Carolina a man Lucas <laughs> so for our listeners Luke they said Lucas should be uh, part of the interview uh, for the podcast, and I said, well, if we're interviewing Lucas, we've got to interview West too, because the conversation's just good. So, I have Lucas and West, and Lucas is the youngest of the three, but maybe the oldest of the three, like old soul, right? West, you guys introduce yourselves, where you work, what you do, and then I'm going to kick it into the topic.
1: All right, I'm West, and I'm glad to be in the village I am a person in long-term recovery, uh, that means for the last 18 years I haven't found it necessary to use drugs nor alcohols or harm myself. Um, I'm originally from Harlem, New York. I presently work as a certified substance abuse counselor at the North Carolina Correctional Institution for
2: Women. Peace and Blessings is Lucas Grubbsky, Uh it's also a privilege to be in the village, and I currently work for the Veterans Administration with veterans coming home from prison. Although in no way, shape, or form do I represent the VA. All
0: right. So the conversation is around social justice issues raised, and I'm gonna I'm gonna set the stage here. So for my recovery anniversary in 2018, Wes gave me a book, and gave it to me. A couple months after my anniversary, so I got it like in August, and the book was What Truth Sounds Like, RFK, James Baldwin, and Our Unfinished Conversation About Race in America, by Michael Eric Dyson, written in 2018. And I finished that uh, September 3rd, 2018, and while I was up visiting family, I saw on my sister's uh, nightstand, Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America, written a year before by Michael Eric Dyson. So this is kind of, here's what I've read since September. I'm just gonna run through it. Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile Police and Punish Support by Virginia Eubanks, a 2018 book. I think I learned about it on Fresh Air or something like that. Finished that in September. Because of the first book, I read The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, 1963. Uh, I had a book, uh, Children of the Prison Boom, Mass Incarceration and the Future of American Inequality. By Sarah Wakefield, Christopher Wildman, it's a 2014 book. On the Other Side of Freedom The Case for Hope by DeRay McKesson, written in 2018. Read the uh, 50th anniversary edition of Black Like Me by John Howard Griffin. A book uh, called Rising Out of Hatred The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. Uh, Eli Saslow wrote the, wrote the book. Uh, Walking with the Wind, a memoir of the movement, John Lewis uh, Brian Kuhn out of Pavilion had recommended that Bill White had recommended American Prison, a reporter's undercover journey into the business of punishment by Shane Bauer that came out in 2018 The Broken Ladder, How Inequality Affects the Way We Think, Live, Die by Keith Payne and maybe one of the top ones um, woman at Angelo Creative, Kate Uh, said you should read just mercy the story of justice and redemption by brian stevenson that's a book i've bought for other people i finished that february 17th uh slavery by another name the Reenslavement of black americans from the civil war to world war ii douglas blackman it's a 2008 book and then lauren uh our development coordinator said have you heard of uh, Henrietta Lacks, and she recommended this book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, by Rebecca Skloot. Finished that in April. Thomas Sayre, who did the design out there for the Courtyard, I asked him uh, what he was reading or what's been impactful, and he recommended a book by Robin D'Angelo called White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. And then I'd had sitting on my shelf for a long time, Crossing Broadway, Washington Heights and the Promise of New York City, written in 2014. West had shared it with me because it has a couple paragraphs on his experience going from Harlem up to Washington Heights for school. And then finished uh book that you gave me, Luke, is Folding the Red into the Black or Developing a Viable Untopia for Human Survival in the 21st Century by Walter Mosley. And then another killer book, Wes, that you recommended was *Picking Cotton*, our memoir of injustice and redemption. Finished that when I was out in Arizona, um, and I'm in the middle of about two-thirds of the way through the uh, abolition uh, revolutionary experience or something. Yeah. By that ab- yeah. So anyway, so, so this is a kind of a long way to say that you know I've read books that you've recommended. I've read other books on social justice issues on race, but for whatever reason, the book that you gave me, What True Sounds Like back in August has set you know kind of a course over the last 9 months of really reading deeply into these issues and then one of the neat things here was uh, one of the young guys in the program seeing me reading one of these books and then asking to borrow it and he kind of set up a, he called it our informal, you know, book club, you know, I would, get done with the book and I'd say hey man I've just finished this and he'd say what are you reading now and I'd, and that motivated me to kind of keep reading some of these books and so forth so again book you gave me sparked this uh, kind of focus of reading and so that's the introduction to this and you guys are, are uh, both deep thinkers sensitive folks who also uh, have very Relevant experiences, and so wanted to use that as an introduction to this podcast. What Sounds do you? Like what, you do a
2: deep thinker and a deep reader as well. So.
0: Yeah. Well, I didn't know I was going to give you the keys to the Library
1: of Congress. <laughs> <laughs> and, but um, yeah, just um, I don't even know why I picked that book out for you. I don't know if it was just a uh, something that just happened by chance or, but um, yeah, I remember. I think I gave it to you on our way to. To, um, New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah, and end right. of July. A couple of months afterwards, yeah. and um, I'm just glad it just trickled down and trickled on. And um, um, it was weird. One of the books you you talked about, the um, Immortal Life. I never read the book, but they made a movie or a screenplay adaptation to it, and it was pretty interesting. Um, but um, being in recovery, and some of the um, barriers that I guess are unseen, even in the recovery sense in race, religion, sexual identity, you know. um, Some of the political battles that are there for the recovering person also sometimes evaporate inside the recovery community because we have that common bond of being on that same vessel headed trying to get to the same place of um, humanness. So I guess um, one of the things that I don't think the founders or some of the people that early thought about recovery, you know, how it could bring humanness and eliminate some of the um, barriers of people getting along, I guess, is the best way to look at it. So, Mm -hmm. I think we've crossed that divide a long time ago, so.
0: Yeah, the the recovery tends to transcend transcend some of the uh, structural differences and barriers between individuals and groups.
2: But it seems also that, you know, not all of us have the same opportunities for recovery. So I know like as a youth with my complexion, being, you know, a white man, uh, and my family had, you know, a little bit of paper, white? a little bit of scratch. <laughs> that uh, you know, where a lot of the people I hung with got the opportunity to go to prison, you know, I was afforded the opportunity for, hey, let's let's get the kids some behavior modification or some mm. treatment. You know what I mean? And, you know, so I got a partner. It was in the last institution I was in when I got the opportunity to go to college. That you know, three four generations of my family made possible. He got the opportunity to get sentenced to thirty years of hard labor, no possibility of parole at Angola State Farm in Louisiana. And he, you know, he got a little bit more melanin than I got. Right. So I think we are fortunate that we can, you know, cut to the thick of the human experience, but. I don't know that everyone has the same access. We
1: like to think, you know, does that make sense? Oh, uh, by far, just the stigma of um, the crack epidemic Hmm. or the the opioid epidemic versus the crack crisis. Or a different response. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, know, even when you talk about, you know, economically, we talk about a recession, when I've always lived in a recession. I mean, when have I not? You know, um, I was in a training the other day, and the... We did an exercise of sort of a role play and afterwards we processed and asked, how did I feel? And I felt normal. And she said, how can you feel normal when somebody has just criticized your work and that's been that's my life story. story. <laughs> so I, 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 I'm, I've learned to live that where other people might have been uncomfortable depending on complexion or ethnicity, so. And also, you know, within inside of the rooms of certain organizations, there's still that battle. Acceptance and you know, and I I sort of mockingly joked that you're that you're white, Caucasian, or whatever you might want to call it, but I didn't see it and I still don't see it. I'm like, you know, and it's really weird. Um, You know, a long time ago, a friend of mine, you know, she said, Chris got some black in (laughs) him, you know, and I'm like, we're finding out more people have whatever they have in them than than known. So I don't know, there's yeah, there's still the racial um, tensions inside the recovery community, inside the dynamics of an institution. The complexion of my groups that I work with has definitely gotten lighter, you know, in the last 10 years than it was when I first started at specific, um, specifically working in the Department of um, Corrections, where my average client was anywhere from 18 to 27 years old, African American, and now it can be average client is 18 to 50-year-old Caucasian, you know, Um, and I'd say 80 percent African-American 10 years ago to now 80 percent Caucasian, you know. So even incarcerated getting treatment, is is the African-American population dwindling inside the institutions or are they not being afforded Mm. treatment even in the institutions? I don't know how to to quantify it because I don't have access to all the resources to say is this happening inside the institutions where now we're pushing another population towards treatment, but African Americans still are getting incarcerated at the same rate, but there are less of them in treatment.
2: I mean, it's similar to, with the, what we call an opioid epidemic that, you know, the face of it is people that look like me, but mm-hmm. we know that rates of, of use for African Americans have also increased, but that's not where the resources are to the what
0: you know our native brothers and sisters so the challenges when the face of the next uh, you know drug trend drug epidemic happens if it's not white not middle class what will the response be can can we continue I mean what's happened with the opioid epidemic is it's brought together folks who normally wouldn't work together right. so it's reduced kind of the divisions between law enforcement harm reduction, treatment, recovery, um, and that's been really positive, you know. And, and the, the challenge will be you know, if we can maintain that as things change in the future or if we swing back to you know, the punitive or kind of uh... and there was a book, I don't remember the author's name, but in like 1970, he said, you know, what we think about addiction has a lot to do with who's addicted. You know, part of why I was interested in—and this started like uh, I don't know a month or so ago—we were out behind the kitchen here. You were visiting Chef Kathy. I don't know why you were here, but um, <laughs> but but we, I mean, we were—I was just here just
2: just to be here. Yeah, but yeah. but we were back
0: there, and and we were, and I was talking about, uh, talking about books. I think. Well, we were talking about books, but I was talking about how you've been down to Montgomery, exactly, and, and Fred, West West wasn't fully where, you know, you didn't seem to have the whole history or hadn't been there.
1: I hadn't been there, but I knew about the yeah, museum, yeah, yeah. yeah about so, the exhibit,
0: yeah. And so talk, I mean, talk about that, and that's something you experienced with your dad, right? So the the other part of it is, like, I'm just curious, like, how, how has your family become just, I don't know, interested or aware? Like, why, why is your family attuned to okay. these issues, and what was that experience like going to Montgomery and and it, was all, and it was tied around you are know, talking about Brian Stevenson and just Mercy and so forth.
2: So I'd lead with just first that, that those drug-induced homicide laws that are coming out are a real clear way that we will continue to incarcerate uh, more black folks, more brown folks, and more poor folks in an effort to address the opiate epidemic. Because the definition of drug dealer is really not defined. But to answer the question, I mean, it was an amazing experience uh, So, we had just done that Southern Harm Reduction Conference in Lake Chunaluska, which, interestingly enough, is named after a Cherokee brother that fought meritoriously in the War of 1812. You know, ribbons and coins, and for his service, he and his people were rewarded with the Trail of Tears. And so, I was already, you know, pretty hyped up and emotional about that. And then, my father and his sister, we went down. For the grand opening of the Equity Justice Institute, uh, so the museum's called "From Slavery to Mass Incarceration," and then they have this—I uh, don't have the words to explain it—but they have this memorial, a national lynching memorial, um, which you can look online and you know see see some of the history behind that and the importance of acknowledging. You know while we have. Great statues for Silent Sam, or you know, the daughters of the Confederacy to honor our beloved ancestors that surrendered the flag for it never to be flown again. But regardless, like we need to have some acknowledgment of, you know, how much people were, uh, how genocide was a regular practice. You know what I mean? Uh, they used to make postcards of lynchings to send, so I could send to my relatives and say. Uh, New York, like, hey, look at this great time that we had this weekend, and, you know, the pictures show whole families out there, little children and great smiles, and, you know, our bodies are being burnt, and ears are chopped off as souvenirs and such, but you ask, like, how my family uh, was attuned, so I, you know, on my mother's side, they came over here during the great catastrophe in Eastern Europe. Uh, so like they kind of, you know, already attuned to how would you say human rights issues and such. Uh, her grand, my mother's mother's father was a, a violinist and a composer. And when they Before they started burning people, they burned books and such. And he was somewhat Germanic and so he got an invitation to be the, uh, what do you call concert master of the Third Reich Orchestra. And they were even willing to overlook the fact that his son-in-law was of Jewish heritage and so the story is that he responded in a telegraph that he would be honored to play in Berlin when Gibbles, Hitler, and some other guy were hanging in the streets. So they had to jet. You know and they were fortunate because of the resources that they were able to leave. On my father's side, uh, I'm third generation born in this country and his family, you know, uh, was real involved in some of the union struggles and stuff. So I think that you know, growing up in D.C., when it really was uh, chocolate city and vanilla suburbs, and now it's completely flipped now. It's you know, property values have, have boomed all over. They've tore down projects on people in the P.G. County and other places. You know, being attuned that uh, kind of of our national pastime. You know, that like the legacy of genocide and slavery and. Uh, cultural appropriation, and that, you know, kind of like, what's my role, you know, as one white fella with a certain amount of, how you say, privilege and, uh, you know, opportunities, like, h- how can I navigate that to make it more successful? I think my first couple attempts at trying to get it together, like, you know, to kick dope was really like I need to make something happen because you know my friends in prison or my friends on the street they don't have these opportunities for educational attainment Uh, and and, and so like now just trying to be more intentional I don't know if that answers your question
0: it was very uh, no it was great it was great to to learn about your family's history and you know the influence you know upon you
2: So like we grew up going to, you know they do the little, DC like is always invaded by out of towners with Mm -hmm. protest signs and leaving massive amounts of trash and nobody like really asked the neighborhoods like hey, can we come in and do these things? So we grew up being involved in some of that and I was in high school when the Million Man March came, which if you guys haven't listened to that last poet song for the millions, I mean that's a real beautiful, historical timepiece of the great Maafa and what's happened since. And so I remember like that energy and that uh, momentum of honoring, you know, specifically brothers at that time when, you know, folks had been pretty demonized and criminalized and marginalized for a while. I didn't go. I didn't feel like it was appropriate so my homeboys said I could. To
1: the million man march? Yeah.
2: It's like 14.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I guess there would have been some conflict, but I, I just want to say on behalf, I didn't go either, but I just want to say on behalf of being a man, you you were more than welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know. Um, I just want to say, I don't know if you know about The Last Poets. Of course. Oh, okay, I just want to make sure, because Chris is sort of a, because The Last Poets and Gil Scott are considered yeah. the pioneers of Fitz, right. You know, even though we know that they're, you know, but you know I grew up in New York 70s I was in high school early 70s I was in high school and so for the hip hop generation but I just want to and I don't want to come off topic where you were but you know sometimes you just have a revelation and you know I've lived on this earth for 61 years and I just realized that my first introduction to harm reduction or to drug education goes back to the book Crossing Broadway so here I am in a kid in Harlem Sixty-eight, sixty-nine, middle of the Vietnam War, and we want to talk about an opioid epidemic crisis affecting, you know, especially African Americans that have been sent to Vietnam coming home, but my first introduction to drug education or reduction or, or the harms of it is when they had a bunch of, I'm going to school in Washington Heights, predominantly white neighborhood, and they have a bunch of African American veterans Come up to our school and tell us the perils and the, you know, what's going to happen if you use drugs. Um, And the weirdest thing was, one of them was a guy from my projects that I knew, but I didn't know he was on drugs. And to bring it full circle, he's now an ordained minister, yada yada yada. I just got you know Facebook message from him a couple of days ago, and you know it's just really you know how it just struck me, you know that was my first time that I was ever. You know, this is pre-DARE and all of these other programs. I don't even know what it was called, but, you know, they had these. So we had a problem in our community in the mid-60s when I was a kid, but the education portion of the prevention portion was being shipped to a privileged neighborhood, predominantly Jewish, predominantly white, but they were getting the warnings. And in our neighborhoods, it was, you know, it's it's really ironic how this thing just hit me, just sitting right here when you talk about, you know, crossing Broadway, and I just you know thought back on you know this guy that, wow, you know. And my thing was, I didn't know the person was using drugs. He was just a guy that lived in my neighborhood. You know, one of the eight buildings that made up my project. So, but the um, last,
0: last poets, Jones coming down. <laughs> okay, you heard that song?
1: I probably just can't.
0: Yeah, but you know, you, you know. Yeah, we jumping, in, jumping in. We uh shane gave me a spotify subscription a couple of years ago as a as a gift and so we started doing the playlist mm-hmm. we did playlist of songs of addiction and recovery It's kind of heavy addiction <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and so just I'll, some of the songs on here and some of them come from me and him some of them come from other people lucas gave a song brian's coon's given a lot of songs uh saved by laverne baker okay um, Truth Shall Make You Free by King Hannibal, mm-hmm. uh, Hard Monkeys by 10 Years After, that's what you said, uh, Jones Coming Down is one I put on by Last Poets, Stone Junkie, Curtis Mayfield, obviously some Velvet Underground, uh, Needle and Spoon by uh, Savoy Brown, <coughs> White Lines And <Okay>, Master Flash. And Furious <laughs> by... Yeah. So anyways... Um, well, I got one for you to add.
1: Okay. Angel Dust. Gil Scott. Harris.
2: What about that other Gil <laughs> Scott joint about uh, Home is Where the Hatred Is, yeah. where the needle marks tried to hide my broken heart, and it might not be a bad idea if I never go home again?
0: But that uh, sister sang it too.
2: Ah. Uh, Esther Phillips. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. Actually oh, man, went when you said the that, that last line. Farm. She wow. went over there. So evidently, Gil wasn't. Bad off when he wrote the song. Right. That's what the story is. And so when Esther Phillips sing it, like you can hear her Gillespie personal experience. scott Heron, and Brian Brian, not
1: Brian. Brian. I can't think it was Brian. Oh God, we're old. I'm old.
2: <laughs> and that Winter in America album. Yeah. Talk about race <laughs> <crazy. and> history. <laughs> yeah. That Winter in America song is like, you know, when well, he does the
1: Angola.
0: Story. There it is. Go. All right, I'm, yeah. add, I'm adding it to the playlist okay, yeah. right now. But
1: we were saying, um, yeah, when you said Angola. And you had a friend go there, huh?
2: He's, he's on the downside of the sentence. He's already done uh, like 18 of the 30. So,
1: you know, so you deal, so, you know, and, and like, you know, me and Lucas have known each other, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years. Something like that. Um, so you deal with incarcerated people transitioning from as veterans transitioning?
2: So I kind of work for the ancillary branch of the war machine, the belly of the beast in the slave ships of prison. Yeah, yeah, wow. Trying to assist folks with that navigation. And I see a lot of times, you know, going back to race and class, you know, how for instance, if there's a, 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 a person with my complexion, a white mm-hmm. person that, you know, maybe is a decorated veteran who gets, you know, some large, you know, high A, B, C felony charge, that their outcome is a lot different than some of the brothers I know that came back from Vietnam and are still in the penitentiary today. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. I don't know. I'm not trying to just facilitate, but I just have, you know, a lot of questions. How does the other mental health things play into the transition? You know, since we now have this, and not only that, we have this big PTSD awareness. So this
2: month, I'm so glad you said that, (laughs) because this month is PTSD awareness month. Okay. And I think we owe a lot to uh, specifically Vietnam combat veterans for even having the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first, what, two DSMs, maybe three, it was not a part of it. Right. And it was largely something that was advocated for by combat veterans. A lot of those folks were diagnosed with schizophrenia and such instead of PTSD. But that's a diagnosis that really helps the whole community, mm-hmm. right? Because we know especially with addiction and, and such, you know, the personal traumas exactly. that folks exactly. go through. And if we're not addressing, I mean, we call it what's the buzzword? Trauma-informed care, right? Which sounds real cute, but if we're not getting on a gut level basis with folks about you know what you've been through when you were a child and all of this, we're not addressing nothing.
1: Right? Yeah. Oh, so when we talk about race relations and and you know differences or you know, and I talked about that normal that normalcy, you know, is trauma normal for some of us, or is it just? And then you take me out of a trauma situation, I don't, you know, how, I, do, I how do I act or how do I perform? You know, I, I, you know, just doing some self-evaluation, do I perform better under stress mm. than peace or serenity? You know? Um, you know, I talk about when I first moved to North Carolina, how um, you know, I struggled with silence, with quietness, with nothing going on. And then when I got into recovery, even, you know, what do I do when there's nothing to do? Is that normal? And people say that's peace. And I'm like, that's not peace. That's boring. So, yeah. you know, I'm used to chaos, confusion, you know, something happening. Got to fix this. Got to escape this. Got to. So how does a person adapt to societal norms of regularity versus what's regular for my community? Or what's normal? I don't want to say normal. What's acceptable?
2: And then we're talking about intergenerational trauma too, right? I mean, so certainly our personal trauma, but you know, going back to that uh, that lynching memorial, yeah. You know, we're talking about generations of folks exposed to racialized terror, and I think uh, that has an effect. So, like my people, you know, escaping the ovens, like that intergenerational mm-hmm. trauma yeah. has an effect.
0: So this is exactly what I was thinking about, was getting in that. Brian Kuhn talks about, you know, like, uses kind of the analogy of what happens to the to the soil over time, right? And so as we've had this conversation, like I had a friend that was over in Laos, and he sent me this picture, and it says um, one of the most bombed areas between 64 and 73 Dangerous unexploded bomb still in this area. So, like, what you know, like, what's it like to live? Like, how does that change people to live in an environment where there's all these hazards still, all these unknown hazards mm-hmm. littered around? And then, so, kind of coming back to in the U.S. and you know, what is the impact of generations and generations of? Uh, Racism, slavery, oppression, hatred, etc. So I come to the two questions that I have. And I'm curious what you think. Why is it so hard for people to say, I was wrong or we were wrong? And you think about it like, it was just yesterday on the 50th anniversary of Stonewall hmm. that New York City Chief of Police made it. said, hey, that was wrong. Like, why, I'm just curious, what do you guys think? Why is it so hard to say... For
2: people or for a society and a system?
0: Either way. I mean, those are two two different issues.
2: I mean, I think we live in the myth of rugged individualism. You know, like, this country is built on this whole notion of, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Folks forget real quick that the only reason we're where we are is because of the generations that come before us. And I think that kind of does something to admitting when, you know, I may be wrong. But I think the bigger question behind that, and I don't mean to twist your words, is why is it so difficult as a society or as systems to admit the wrong? And I think a lot of it is, you know, the driving force between capitalism and and the interest that we have in keeping certain arrangements going. Well, but I mean, you much more uh, philosophical. No, I just, than me, right? no, I just no, not at all.
1: I just you know, I just have my views. Um, and I think you hit it right on the head. I mean, we're talking about economics, and if you pull the if you pull the curtains back from the wizard, mm-hmm. and the wizard's not the wizard, you know, um, you know, and we can go back not just you know for racism, but you know, a lot of religion. Um, we don't have to just talk about African-Americans. When we talk about racism, we're not just talking about African-Americans. We can talk about, you know, you talked about the Native Americans. I mean, come on. Um, you know, when your institutions and your, your whole structure has been built on the backs by oppressing other people, um, and even when you want to talk about racism as not, but you want to talk about classism, when you have marginalized white people that are put in the system as marginalized and, you know, the quote-unquote trailer trash, you know? So you definitely have your elites. You have, you know, we have a class system here that's not listed as such, but it exists. So to say that we were wrong, and then just saying I'm wrong or we were wrong still, what? Yeah, that doesn't change, and that doesn't bring back all those bodies that were lynched, all the people that were sent to the... On the Trail of Tears, all the people that were put in ovens—it doesn't erase that. So I think it's even more than just saying we were wrong. The wrongs—you can't
0: deny it. An we know it.
2: is a start, but it an ain't repatriation. Right,
0: right. But, but agree, without, I, I, I agree. But
2: truth and to, reconciliation is a sequential process, you guys says, hmm. Mr. Stevenson. Without yeah. truth,
0: to, to talk about actually making changes, like it's. It's, it starts with... Exactly. And and it, and, it, and it is it is so hard, it seems, just to even acknowledge. So, like, in and, uh, you know, I'm digging the hole here. I'm going, you know, because Bear can edit, which is good. <laughs> but, you know, like, I'm reading Picking Cotton. So, you yeah. know, he, you heard him talk about the story, right? Guy in Burlington. Cute yeah, yeah, him Kendrick. and the lady. Right, exactly, exactly. Told yeah, they told there. They got a whole... Yeah.
2: James Cotton, what's his name?
1: Uh, Robert? Uh, Robert 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 yeah. yeah but it's about forgiveness
0: it's about yeah I mean
2: powerful story
0: I mean th- those are those are throughout some of these first of all th- this is depressing stuff for me okay and I'm a white guy
1: right
0: you know like I mean and so I don't know maybe like for other people who've lived it all this time it's like it's just the normal or whatever mm-hmm. but like these are some depressing places to get because I'm, the, one of the constant themes in these books is that there's people who are disposable and expendable. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's a constant theme. And then there's the thought for me, like, how did I happen to end up on this side of it, is not and not on that side of it? You know, like, where's the equity or the fairness or the justice in any of that? You know, why? And I'm listening. You know, I'm, <clears throat> I'm reading the book and uh, picking cod, and I'm sitting there going, I don't know how this guy. Mm-hmm hung in there you know like I, you know I get so impatient over day to day stuff and this guy is having some of the most ultimate you know injustice happening and so forth and then I had this other uncomfortable thought come up which was is there a benefit to society when at least somebody's convicted like does that prevent more rabid rioting uh, uh, like just and, and thinking about it more back in
2: historically. historically,
0: you know, like like society has a need to to blame somebody, find somebody guilty, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm I'm not articulating it real well, but it it's like some of the lynchings that you talked about.
2: So those moved into legal Okay. So you can yeah. run it into the courthouse yeah, the same yeah, yeah. day, yeah. and then string somebody up or shoot them. Yeah. So now it's not angry mob violence, it becomes right. More system- part system- of the system- judicial yeah. system.
0: So, and so I guess what I'm saying is that it seems to serve some function for society maintaining its homeostasis or its balance or whatever. <laughs>
1: no, it's good. No, because I mean, you know, don't edit it because this is what we need. You know, where, where it's hard to say it, but it, it'll come out. So what? I, I don't mean to cut you off because I want to get back to it, but yeah, feed the angry mob. But the angry mob is going to get fed by who? The most vulnerable, right. or the least educated, or the least resourceful. So we got this new movie. Well, this this movie out now,
2: Park right?
1: If they could see us or how yeah. they w- see. Yeah, they were from 20 blocks away from me, so could have been me.
2: Um, two decades different growing yeah, up. Yeah,
1: but you know, why couldn't it have been me, and how many other Central Park 5's right. were there that we don't know? And of course, you know, we don't, you know, but it's an injustice to our supposed system. if It's better that an innocent man go free than, a, than an innocent man go to prison, but we, we don't work on those, and you know, we talk about, you know, the bail system, you know, my peers hearing am I being judged by jury of my peers? Do I have the same benefit and the same um, perception from the people that are enforcing the laws in my neighborhood that come where from are those law- laws?
2: Where's the target?
1: Right. So yeah, it is. It is difficult to, to, to articulate into, but um, how do we change it? I don't know. But conversations like this, um, you know, between you know, four different people, you know, um, from different perspectives, different um, cultural backgrounds, from different urban, rural, wherever you're from, you know. But, you know, to to put that together and mash it out, um, yeah, this is where it starts. But I don't think just saying that we were wrong, you know, Central Park Five were never given an apology by the New York City
2: they got a settlement. They got a settlement, which is completely that different. Public. That's, hey, let's stop right. this before And you want
1: to talk about Cotton, you know, my hero, well, one of my heroes, you know, how did Mandela get out and, I mean, I would have wanted to kill everybody. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I mean, but, you know, how do you have that fortitude, that resilience to say, hey, you know, is that going to eliminate, the? you know, if I go and kill everybody, so or am I turning into what people... The same thing that people did
0: to me. Well, that's it happened with, in picking cotton. You know, and he faces that moment where he's ready to kill the guy. Mm. Yeah. And he, he's talking to his dad about it. His dad, like, well, you're saying you're innocent, that you're going to cross a line that you, yeah, you know, I'm can't. I'm um, well, so and that leads into the kind of a, another question. And um, <laughs> you know, the first season, of the uh, Voice of the Village, we always ask, you know, the same same question in each interview. You know, what should we call this podcast? And so we were for the second series of interviews for the second season we were thinking about what kind of question to ask and I this was a question I wanted to ask but I felt like it just it was too much <laughs> The question is what needs to happen for us to have a just and equitable society or a just and equitable com- community um and so thinking about it you know statewide nationally or just within you know, like what what needs to happen
2: So I think there's a, this doesn't answer the question, it's a lovely idealistic question. I really appreciate you bringing it up because the only way we can create solutions is to start thinking about it. But there's a quote I wanted to share from 1857 that I think speaks to this from the great, perhaps the greatest orator of the day, uh, Frederick Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. And it says, let me give you a word of the philosophy of reform. The whole history of the progress of human liberty shows that all concessions yet made to her august claims have been born of earnest struggle. The conflict has been exciting, agitating, all-absorbing, and for the time being, putting all other tumults to silence. That means like raging, right? It must do this or it does nothing. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. And then that thing about you know those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation, are men who want crops without plowing up the ground, they want rain without thunder and lightning, they want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. And so I think we have a lot of different, uh, how do you say, philosophical or uh, you know, party-based conversations about we can do this or we can do that. And I don't mean to be. Uh, negative focus but i think a lot of it is smoke and mirrors like let's just say this going back to that you know what mandela or what gandhi or what brian stevenson like truth and reconciliation is a sequential process so until we can actually recognize you know that the basis of this country has always been white supremacy uh you know and all of these horrors that we really, everything we do to move forward, we can change hearts and minds, but if systems aren't changed, what's really happening? And so I think one first step is to have a common discussion and a common language, because even like the terms racism or you know oppression, like we have different understandings of them. So to kind of have Start to develop a common lexicon, if you would, so that we know that we're actually talking about the same thing, I think would be helpful. There's a group out of Louisiana that's uh, national and international called the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond that does some real foundational work on uh, race equity and having a cultural and historical framework. They use the analogy that, you know, if we talk walking down the street and say one of you guys, big guy like Bear says, you know, how you doing? I said, man, it's kicking my ass. And he says, what? And so they have this foot identification process of what is the foot that's kicking everybody's (laughs) ass. So let's look at all of these systems. Um, Here in Carolina, a crew that came out from that is the Racial Equity Institute, which does a lot of work around this area with the school systems, with, uh, how you say, the Department of Social Services? So I think being able, like, we've got to have a common knowledge base and vocabulary to even have the conversation. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, I think, had a real, you know, the reason we have free lunches uh, at schools and Mm -hmm. such. They had a real simple 10-point plan, you know, like housing, education, uh, real simple basic human rights that, you know, RFK and folks have been... Talking about since the inception of this country, but we've never had that basic human rights package. You know, that 10, what's the first 10 of the Constitution called? Ten the the first 10 amendments of so the Bill of Rights. The Bill of, the Bill of Rights. rights. The Bill so of it's rights. a Bill okay. of Rights that's never really been delivered. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're talking about, we're still arguing about universal health care, you know, like real basic things or food for folks. I mean, so I think uh, what so, focusing on what can I do in my small circle, like like yeah. Wes said about having conversations and raising awareness.
0: I mean that kind of truth and reconciliation. You know, the you know Brian Stevenson talks about what Germany's done. You know, around
2: absolutely
0: Holocaust, Like, right. You know, so like
2: public acknowledgments and statues. Yeah.
1: So just my my point on it is, you know, um, you know we talk about. How do we do this, or where do we start? And you know, you know, one of our great leaders, um, you know, Abraham Lincoln, you know, coming out of um, the end of the Civil War and Reconstruction. And I think one of the greatest things that happened in the history of the United States was, you know, his assassination, because it throttled Reconstruction. And Johnson got in and replaced him. I think it was Johnson, and um, led more towards, you know, not. Holding people accountable in the South, where
0: I think it was Ulysses Grant.
1: No, Grant came after Johnson. Yes, okay. Yeah, I think I think yeah, Grant wasn't yeah. There was a president in between after the assassination. But what happened was, you know, the whole economic because if you're economically deprived and educationally deprived, you know, that's the system that really holds people down. So if we don't have a if we don't have a, a fairness and we have never had the stakes or the, the claim to equitable financial resources, land ownership, and, you know, you're talking about flipping D.C. inside out. You know, that's happening in Raleigh. It's happening in New York City. You know, um, I had a friend, she just moved up to Connecticut from down here, and um, she went to Harlem the other day, and she said is not like I pictured it and I said well welcome to Oz Dorothy you know you know but I think there's great things that you know but we have this whole system that if if people are not and you know we're talking now we're even bringing up you know reparations again you know people were never you know um, you know. You know, I'm talking about even not even just African Americans. You know, I always want to go back to the great Native American injustice that was done in this country. And we just wiped them out, took their stuff, made promises, moved them further into these isolated pockets. And until you have ownership of, you know, the power is do you own? What do you own? I mean, to even to be a voting block, you know, the African Americans are a strong voting block. We spend money, you know, but until you have ownership of things you know, so it's the capitalist system, it's the driving force, and until, and if I can hold people down, they don't have the same affordability or accessibility to education, to health care, to safe living, the system is always gonna be, so, you know, people don't wanna give up power, you know, people don't wanna give up power, you you know, and that's the biggest thing, so, how do we change it? I don't know if there's a change to be made. I think the only thing we can do is educate. And I think some of our leaders, you know, it was really weird. I, I talk about sometimes when I when I give my story how in my community, it was okay to be dumb. You know, we 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 as a we as some people sometimes we, you know, why are you doing homework? Why do you you, you talk like you're white or oh, like? And I bought into that. I dumbed myself down to fit in. And it was really, now that I look back, that was the worst thing I could have done, but it was a mindset that it was like, you were wrong to want to get smart.
0: Yeah, so internalizing uh, the messages of what the dominant society is. Yeah. The internalized stigma, the...
1: Right, and and we wanted to assimilate rather, and, and I understand now there's a need to assimilate, but there's also a need to accentuate my gifts and who we are as a people.
2: And I think, you know, letting folks know that, like, this this arrangement, this systemic arrangement, it affects everybody on both sides. We're talking about a
0: dehumanizing thing. So, are, are there any communities or any examples that you can point to that say, hey, they've done this well in terms of...
2: So there's a book by a man named Russell Schultz. I'm probably mispronouncing his last name. But it, it, the, the book, it's a collection of essays, is called The Implacable Maroon. Implacable comes from uh, an old Huey Newton quote that you know, most people, I'm misquoting it, but most people fold like napkins under, <laughs> under pressure. However, there are a few implacables that will stand on principle. And Maroon is what he was dubbed, uh, I think, the first two times that he escaped custody. Uh, Maroon is from the what Portuguese and Spanish mixture in Jamaica, what they called Simaroons were runaway livestock mm-hmm. and so the people first people at my understanding the British Empire signed a peace treaty with one of their colonies were what were called the Maroons these were uh, self-emancipated enslaved Africans that created their own community. So anyway this dude writes a book and he has some really good historical uh information about like in Cuba, in Haiti, in different places in Brazil, where they were able to use non-centralized arrangements, I don't want to use the word government, but Mm -hmm. you know where different communities were autonomous and had some affiliations. But these are like really old... Uh,
0: Maroon the implacable, the collected writings of Russell Maroon Schultz.
2: To my understanding, he is still in prison in Pennsylvania. Uh, he, him, and Mumia Abu Jamal, mm-hmm. the reporter who was involved <coughs> with the Black Panther Party and one of the few folks to give an impartial treatment to MOVE, and I think they just had an anniversary of, of when Osage Avenue was bombed. Yeah, or- ordered.
1: I was, I was in.
2: They were in the same. When that happened. They were in the same, uh, you know, 24-hour lockdown, mind control
0: unit. Yeah, there, there's a lot of individual stories that uh, help with this. And I'm looking for the community ones. But here's some individual ones real quick. Um, podcast called Snap Judgment. Or a show called Snap Judgment on NPR. A, a story, what, called, an ser- episode called It Wasn't Me. People like Mistaken Identity, blah, blah, blah and so there's one story of a guy gets convicted of uh, double homicide sentenced to life death penalty was uh, not on the table cuz at that time in california <clears throat> and after about 10 years I and mean, he's telling the da to parole here and like you know you know you locked up an innocent man da finally decides to look at it in a different lens realizes this guy isn't in- innocent, mm-hmm. innocent gets him out but the coolest part of the story is how they're like Best friends. They go to the Oakland A's games. They go they, and then so there's just this interview with the two of them. Love that sort of thing. Uh, rising out of hatred. Um, that's the
2: nationalist school. Yeah, the
0: white nationalist. You know, Godfathers David Duke. You know, kind of grew up. You know, being put into this role. He goes to this small school in Florida for college. And he's still doing his podcast or his morning radio show or whatever. That's and he's worried about people finding out about him and people do find out about him and there's a small group that decide not to ostracize him. You know, a Jewish guy invites him over every Friday, woman starts paying close attention, you know, and like trying to understand. And it's like people stayed engaged with him and that allowed him to move out and seek. It's weird that we say convert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right?
1: Yeah. I mean, he converted, but... Yeah. The, uh, the,
0: yeah, I know. The, the Brian Ste... You know, the... I mean, picking cotton. So the fact that, you know, this forgiveness and this this bond that created uh, between the two, I mean, she talks about, I wanted this guy to rot in prison and suffer. And just, you know, and for her to move to a place where she, you know, feels love, genuine love for this guy and it's mutual. Uh, Brian Stevenson, you know, talking about going into this one prison and, uh, you know, seeing a pickup truck with all sorts of, kind of white nationalist or and
2: that relationship he develops with that CEO. well yeah the
0: ceo is like giving him all this mm. crap you know and like letting him know like hey i'm the guy that drives that that pickup truck <laughs> and then showing up one day and the guy's like not treating him like the way he normally treats him and he's like hey you know i i took the your guy that you're representing mm. i was one to escort him to court for those couple of days and I heard about him in foster care, and mm. I thought that no one else had it worse than me in foster care. And then he says, you know, this guy was always asking Brian Stevenson for a chocolate milkshake. He could never <laughs> bring it. Out. He could never. And so he says to Brian Stevenson, hey, "I got him a chocolate milkshake." Like that. That's the. That's the hope. Those are the stories of hope, and I. What always, about like
2: Homeboy Industries in California? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an example of some restorative justice, you know, creating space for folks to flourish that have been marginalized and criminalized and stigmatized.
0: Yeah, Jason Schwartz up at Dawn Farm in Michigan, uh, big fan. Has had is Greg Boyle's his name? Father Greg. Yeah, has had him out there, and even in an email exchange last week, was uh, referencing them. Yeah. so th- those are the stories Susan
2: that... Burton out in California with the with the women's houses for ladies coming out of uh, prison turned down state money like had state funding and didn't realize a part of that grant was that the pro the law enforcement will come in and do raids <laughs> and, and she didn't want to continue to traumatize what a these women. And she gave that money back. She has her book, "Becoming Miss Burton," uh, is a real strong read. And where she has she's involved in recovery for some time, and it hits her like, "Oh, I'm not broken." Like this system has produced these outcomes.
0: Yeah. All right. Um,
2: Transformative justice.
0: <laughs> so, what's a book you're reading right now? Like
1: I said, I'm waiting on the. Um, I just said it because I ordered you one. Um,
0: the four, the four, four agreements. agreements, exactly.
1: Okay. So I'm um, it's I I see sometimes I do own I do I'm a prime member, mm-hmm. but sometimes you get benefits for not ordering the fast way. So yeah, it should be here in a couple of days. So
0: that's what I'm waiting on. Okay. What are you reading right now?
2: I'm dabbling in a couple books. Uh, this uh, Bawa Muhaddin I think is the brother's name, he's some Sufi mystic uh, that was brought over here to Pennsylvania and the guy's, uh, you know, he just spits a lot of knowledge.
1: Was he Not Turkish? Nah, I believe
2: the brother was in uh, Sri Lanka. Like there's some, nobody knows how old the guy was. He was living like out in the woods. And the local village kind of brought him in as a mediator and a judge because they recognized like how much knowledge he had. Then some kind of way over time, he ends up in the UK, then he ends up in Pennsylvania, and they you know, build some kind of community. And folks come from all over just to hear this guy kind of spit knowledge and uh, mm. you know, some spiritual connection. So I've been re-looking at that because I've had some uh, Transformative personal things just kind of making me look at, you know. And then I, I've been reading this Narcotics Anonymous book uh, yeah. lately, this, <laughs> this basic text. Is it blue? That, <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been looking at the gray one and the blue cool. one. Cool. And uh, I got to say something about that illegal and illicit literature, like, and the power and the rawness behind that non fellowship approved approval form, like, it's it's pretty powerful, man, and that ability I think what we're talking about here, we're talking about folks being able to tell the truth about their experiences and that a transformation is possible. A lot of folks say that our society needs, you know, we have some cultural illnesses and we need some kind of twelve step process for that restoration.
0: What do you do when you find yourself in a rut? Help get out of it. <laughs> There's that question again. Um, I've never been out of the rut,
1: but I understand what you mean um you know it's 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 you know people I don't know I don't wanna say people, but yeah I'm gonna say people you know i i my 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 perspective is so different, you know, I guess you know, and I look at it this way, you know, I'm sitting in a room, three white guys, well two white guys and Luke and me <laughs> but no seriously, um you know how how's it to be
2: black? you're black,
1: yeah, sometimes. But um, no, you know what? You know how's it? So you know when you ask that question, how's it to be in a rut? You know, and there's another book that I want to find, um, and I, I just hit just dawned on me. You know, I live in the valleys more than on the mountains. I live in the valleys, but the valleys has so much to offer too. You know, um, shade, um, water, growth, and then the Climb up on the mountain, and then sometimes you're going to go back to the valley anyway. And I think this general wrote a book, um, "The Second Mountain" or something, finding the second mountain, and it really touched me. I heard a you know talking about it, you know. So um, when I get in a rut, it's not. I don't.
0: Are you talking about David Brooks?
1: Yeah, he the one that talked about making your bed.
0: No, I don't know if... There's did, a guy... i will
1: we'll look at it later. But he, made a, he did a the commencement speech, and it's one of the most watched YouTube, why it's important just to make your bed, because that way you've completed at least a task, and then you move on from there and there. But I think he has a book called... It's something about, you know, hitting the second mountain or whatever, but the valley, you know? So that rut sometimes isn't a bad place to be, because then it gives me that chance to look at, you know, what's the next obstacle? How do I get out of it? But I've been in um, depressive states and... Um, question my um, sanity, you know, I'm honest enough to say it. You know, my um, my self-worth, my being, my existence, you know, but I read, I got a quote yesterday, you talk about it, somebody sent me a thing and it said, you know what, somebody's reading a book that you suggested to him. Somebody's listening to a song that reminds you of them. Somebody's um, touching something, so your fingerprint is out there. It's just sometimes you gotta remember you're on the other end of the fingerprint. So I guess when I'm in a rut, sometimes it's just I get these answers that I don't know where they come from. Or, but you know, I, I've learned that you know there's going to be more valleys, and the valley isn't always bad. Would
0: Would the question sound different if I asked, um, What do you do when you feel like giving up? Are you feeling like quitting?
1: Yeah, I mean same, same, same gravy. I guess just warmed over different. Um, I don't know. I don't have a, I don't have one thing that just works. It just seems that it just. It just flows, you know, like I said, I just celebrated, you know, birthday, and I'm 61 years old, and that's like a number that's like, yeah, it's, but it's just like, it just doesn't, it just doesn't connect. I mean, I don't feel old, I know things don't work the way they always did. I'm not as good as I used to be, but I do have good days. So, I don't know, Chris, that's a tough question to really look at, because um, I don't have one thing that I just reach for that works. You know, a lot of people might say this is their antidote mine's are a series of just um and i I mean i've had it i've been like you know you talked about the person being in the foster home and this and that and being a child of adoption I, i sort of just my ears perked when you said that you know and i look at all the how bad it has been in the past it's gotta be better sometimes you know the sun you know it's always darkest before the light so i get there you know i go in some low places but um I don't stay there as long as I used to, but I still get there, so there's not one specific thing that works. Some people say prayer works for them, so going to a meeting, or this or that. Um, it's a combination of different things, and sometimes, you know what, if I had that one answer, that's all I would rely on.
0: Yeah, well, I, I, I connect more with what you're saying. And if somebody had the one thing, single thing that they're very confident, that when I do this, it, you know, it, anyways, what about for you, Lucas?
2: I just want to say how impressed I was with you talking about the mountain and the valley and then ending with that quote from the On the Mountain speech by <laughs> Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King about it's always, you know, you can see the light when it's most dark. Mm-hmm. That's when we can see the stars. So, uh, I would say that, you know, my perspective changes from I really don't have no ruts when I look at you know some of the struggles that other folks go through uh, you know I got some luxury issues man. Uh, you know like my oldest daughter don't take out the trash sometimes or you know I can't pay this bill uh, but yeah certainly you know there are times where where I'll be like man what the hell am I doing like am I really... You know, sometimes I, I went, my wife sent me back to school some years ago, uh, excuse me, the woman that allows me to call, it, uh, <laughs> for that social work thing. You know, and I have bought, bought this dream that, like, you know, I looked at the little code of ethics and it seemed real righteous. And, you know, then they basically told me, like, this is a professional class. You know, this is not social justice or activism. Those are just some of the code words that we throw out. Because my, 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 my beef with like the whole mental health and treatment field, although making that impact on an individual and group basis was profound, was that like if we're just helping folks to function in the society that is still wicked and corrupt, like what are we really doing if we're not changing, you know, like you said, the groundwater thing, if we're not checking that. So what I, I, I'm very grateful that uh, you know the creator, the universe, has always placed people in my life that can help pull me up, and that can help guide me. And I would agree with the combination approach. You know, sometimes I gotta immerse myself even deeper in the work. Sometimes I gotta go for a walk in the woods. You know, sometimes I gotta cry. Sometimes I gotta laugh. Uh, but like looking at my little granddaughter, and looking at you know uh, the youth. And the older folks like something about that helps me realize again, like you know, man your ass up and keep keep walking. This road really ain't as bad as I think. Muta Baruka put out a song in 1991. Uh, I am the man you love to hate, and it's 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 the chorus is been in the valley for a very long time, but we never get weary yet. And so you know comparatively speaking yeah I mean existential angst and all of that is a reality but what the I got to complain about excuse my language There.
0: One, one last thing yeah, two last things um, always super impressed with uh, how you treat people so we're standing out down in Tampa back in March standing outside Weird the hotel nice every person walked by peace and blessings I mean, you greet people. And you say you acknowledge you acknowledge people, um, and I, that's something that I'm learning watching you. You know, like how to acknowledge other people's existence and so forth. So, want to say that, and then we want to apologize to Bear. We need to apologize to Bear.
2: Bear, we love you so. Why Happy birthday do you apologize
0: to me? It's your birthday. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I mean he's got a. Got to try to turn this into an actual podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is probably
1: your. I was going to say, I was thinking the same thing. This is probably going to be your. But you know what? I, like I said, sometimes real is real. I
0: mean, yeah. he's. You uh, me, he got to entice it up I yeah. mean, most most of these things we do, I think the longest one we ever do is 50 minutes. How long have we been talking? Yeah, like an hour and 20. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. We really
2: appreciate, you know, I, I didn't mention, like, every time, if I was ever in a position, you know, to get myself together, so to speak, like, you know, the work that you all do here at Healing... Tradition. I know it's hard for me to really say, to ...something it. different. Uh, like, it, it is a beautiful thing, man. It warms my heart to come here. Last thing I want to throw out is y'all got a brother y'all need to interview uh, in the village who did 18 and a half on a wrongful conviction. Uh, brother Lamont Armstrong that Al Webb and Tony Holt, like, you know, they all went to school together. Prior to what's the word desegregation yeah. and he's right here and
1: uh, I believe he lives in Meebank right by Metin. Elfland mm-hmm. <laughs> something Elfland <laughs> I want to say this though seriously and I know we're probably way over oh, you yeah. know but you know sometimes just things just come to me and you know but you know we're sitting here um, and we talked a lot about race and, and you know and, and justice and fairness too you know but we sit here and if you really look at it and it sound is going to sound so corny and, you know but damn it's all just because of the pigmentation of our skin or you know what part of the country i grew up in or what i, I choose to call a, a higher power and pray to that, that that causes all of this strife and division and you know the some of us just the simplicity of it especially those of us that have found you know long-term recovery or and it doesn't just have to be recovery from drugs but from whatever it might be um, just the simplicity of life how we just marginalize it sometimes and I just sat here with you know with you three guys and you know we're not any different but we have so many different differences of experiences and and thoughts to bring and nobody said hey what you said was wrong or this wasn't right and you know but when you get you know, like, you know, I guess it was another one that, you know, we're, we're taught to hate. We're not born to hate. We're taught to dislike. We're not born to dislike. We have our own subjective, you know, favorites or, or biases, but, you know, we just sat here for, like you said, an hour, hour 20 minutes and um, chopped it up and agreed to agree without even having to say I disagree just to just to listen. And so sometimes the answer is, can't I just listen to other people? Just listen, I don't have to agree with you, just listen and let them, because most people, you know what, they just want to be heard or just want to get it out. And I don't even know what I want to get out. And I don't even know what I have to say, but I, I know there's something in it that wants to come out. You know, so it's hard being me. I'm sure it's hard being you. I'm sure it's hard being you. I'm sure it's hard being you, but I wouldn't want to be you, and I'm sure you don't want to be me. So I just want to be the best me that I'm meant to be. And whatever that is, is still to be determined. I'm, I'm profoundly grateful for both of you. Glad we got together.
0: Voices from the Village is hosted by Chris Budnick and produced by me, Bear McBride. Music is by Vibe Tracks. Healing Transitions is a nonprofit recovery program for homeless, uninsured, and underserved individuals struggling with alcoholism and other drug addictions in Wake County, North Carolina. For more information, visit our website at healing-transitions.org. That's healing-transitions.org.